There was a man who had a son, and this was the best, most incredible, amazing son on the face of the planet. What was kind, was compassionate, was generous, was, was smart, was just a lover of Jesus. And so this father was just so proud of his son, and this father was extremely wealthy. Money was no object to him, could provide for his family or the son whatever he wished. And so the son, just growing up, did amazing through school, got to be 16 years old. And so the father came to the son and said, son, you've been the most incredible son I could ever hope for or ask for. I have the means, whatever you want, name it, and it's yours. Is it a Lamborghini, Ferrari, whatever you, 16 years old, I don't care, I'm gonna do it. You've been an incredible son. And the son thought about it for a second. He said, you know what, dad? What I'd really love is a thousand pink ping pong balls. And the dad was like, okay, sure. And so he just gave it to his son. Son grew up, valedictorian of the class, went to the most prestigious university on the planet, Baylor. And um, <laughs> a lot of laughter about that. And uh, so his son uh, graduated summa cum laude, top of the class, got this great job out of it. Dad was so proud again, said, son, great job. How can I bless you? What can I do? Can I, can I buy you a home, send you on a trip around the world? And the son thought about it and said, actually, I'd love another thousand pink ping pong balls. The dad gives it and doesn't understand why. And then the son goes and gets married to this perfect woman. They have an incredible family. So the dad's just like, hey, I want to I wanna bless you again. At the, at the wedding, same thing. Wanted a thousand pink ping pong balls. This happened all through life. Every time the father wanted to dote upon the son and show his gratitude and appreciation, this is always what the son asked for. They lived long, healthy lives, but toward the end of the son's life, he got a little sick, got into the hospital. It did not look like the son would outlive the father. And so the father rushes to the hospital bed, sits beside the son, and finally, just overwhelmed with curiosity, asks the son, I never asked you why, but every time when I could have got you anything you wanted, why did you ask for a thousand pink ping pong balls? And the son says, Dad, I'm so glad you asked. The reason I wanted a thousand pink ping pong balls was because, and he breathed his last and passed away. It's a horrible stop. Yeah, I know. It's a horrible joke. It will be a splinter in your mind the rest of the day. You're going to try to come up with a reason at lunch. There is none. That's the point. It's to make you miserable. So the reason I tell you that joke that just leaves you with this cliffhanger wanting to know more is because that's exactly how the book of Jonah ends. It ends with this cliffhanger. We, we don't know the rest of the story. It just cuts off at the climax. There is no resolution. There is no conclusion. It's completely open-ended. But here's what you got to think about. The author knew what happened. The author provided all these details. Of course, the author knows Jonah's response at the very end of the book, but chooses not to tell us, to leave us with a pink ping pong ball cliffhanger. Why would the author do that? There is a really, really good, really profound, impactful reason why. So let's walk through the text and see why the author would leave us on the edge and not resolve the story of Jonah. It begins like this. We'll go back to 3.10. So Jonah's gone, preached repentance to Nineveh. Nineveh turns and repents, 3.10. When God saw what they did, 
How they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. 4.1. And the prophet of God went home rejoicing because the Ninevites repented of their sin and entered into a living and redemptive relationship with the God of Israel. And that generation was spared of tragedy and suffering and the consequences of sin. Well, that's what we hoped it would say. That's what we would expect it to say when a prophet of God goes to a sinful city and shares and they all repent. That's what we thought we'd get. But it's not at all. It's the complete opposite, right? That's Jonah. It's this big irony, this extreme opposite reactions. So here, after Nineveh actually repents and God relents of the destruction, here's what Jonah actually says and does. It says, verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. How many people get upset about a job well done? I mean, that's what John, you got, you got a preacher, a prophet going to preach repentance, 120,000 people kind of trusting Yahweh or sorry for their sin, and he's angry. Like, you ever seen a doctor walk out of a surgery room, operating room, just be like, Dad, I saved another patient, right? You ever seen firefighters get mad at each other and be like, why do we put the, the fire out of the house, you know? Or an accountant go like, ah, oh, I balanced the books again. Actually, that's a little too expressive for an accountant. <laughs> but that's what's happening with Jonah, right? Job well done. And, and not just the text, the English text, probably doesn't give you the full flavor. The original language literally translated, when Jonah saw this, he says, it was an evil to Jonah. That's how displeased he is. That they did not get the punishment he thought they deserved. He said, it's evil. He goes on, verse two, and he prayed to the Lord. Look how selfish, there's so many eyes in this. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Big moment of the book here. We kind of peel back the layers and we see Jonah's true motive for running. I said earlier in the series, but Jonah's reason for running is number one, although he will not say this, he is trying to be God. He is trying to control the situation and the outcome and prevent it from what God wanted. He's putting himself in the place of God, trying to be God. And secondly, he's trying to escape guilt. That's why he's fleeing to Tarshish, the end of the known world where Yahweh has not yet revealed himself, so he doesn't have all these little reminders of his disobedience. This is why Jonah's running. And what he's doing here is he's not fleeing to save his own life. The Assyrians and Ninevites, absolutely cruel and brutal. But he's not fleeing to save his own life. He's fleeing so that God will not save theirs. He wanted their judgment and their destruction. And now that it didn't happen, he says it's evil. He's mad, he's displeased, he's angry. So much so that he starts to mock God. He takes God's own words and throws them back to God. What he's quoting here is from Exodus. When Moses was hidden in the cleft of the mountain and God passed by, God said, I am a gracious God, abounding in love, slow to anger. And so Jonah's taking those exact words that God said and he's throwing them back at his face, saying, I disapprove of your character, of your nature. I hate it. It's 
evil. He's in a bad spot. See, Jonah was a Hebrew, a people of the Lord. He's a prophet. He knows all the holy cliches. He can quote the Psalms and understand the scriptures and preach the word. But you know the one thing he couldn't do? He couldn't love. Reminded of 1 Corinthians where it says, if you do all these things, but you don't have love, you gain nothing. It profits you nothing. I think about Jesus when he says, you workers of iniquity, right? You did all these things in my name, but depart from me for I never knew you. How could you do something in Jesus' name and Jesus says, workers of iniquity, depart from me? Because you didn't have love. And that's Jonah's case here. Doing some things, but he didn't have love. Now, what I find fascinating is that Jonah's very selective in the words of God that he throws back in God's face. He leaves off a little bit, does a little cherry picking. Here's the whole kind of thing that, that, that God said to Moses. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. And here's what Jonah left out. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. He conveniently leaves out and skips the part about God not letting the guilty go unpunished. He's straw manning God. He's taking this little piece of scripture and throwing it back to God and saying, look, you're just gracious and merciful and you let everybody off the hook. And do we not do that at times? Use scripture to justify us in some form or fashion? Simplistically, that's what he's doing. He's using scripture to justify his indignation, his anger, and his bitterness to make himself feel more righteous, like he's in the right spot. It's been said that if we feel more righteous as we read the Bible, we're misreading it. We are missing its central message. We are reading and using the Bible rightly only when it humbles us, critiques us, but then encourages us with God's love and grace despite our flaws. What I've been saying, scripture in the book of Jonah, it punches you in the gut and then points you to God. Or as Tim Keller would more eloquently say, the Bible does this. It reveals that you are more wicked than you ever dared to believe. Yet, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus than you ever dared hope. So Jonah's mad, he's in a rage, he's mocking God, he goes on. Therefore now, Oh Lord, please take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. And so this is not like a, oh, I'm upset. I didn't get my way. Just kill me now. I think what's happening here is like, if you've ever had like a horrible boss and you just want to leave, you're like, I don't like the way you run your company. I don't like the values that you have. I don't like the way you structure this organization. That's what Jonah's feeling. He's got a bad boss, so he thinks, he goes, God, I don't like your nature, I don't like, like the way you're running this company, the universe, and so I wanna move to another company. But there's not one, so he's like, just kill me now. So that's kind of the tension that he's wrestling with. He goes, I disapprove of your gracious and merciful nature. He goes on, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Other ways, other translations, you could say that is that, that God would be saying to Jonah, do you have any right 
to be angry about this? Or why are you mad about their repentance and my mercy? Or God could be saying, is your anger a good and righteous anger? I mean, I love that God is patient in this moment with Jonah. Because God could just go to town on him, just put him in his place, explode on Jonah. But he's surgical. And he's patient. And he's asking questions to Jonah to hopefully lead Jonah somewhere and to show that his heart has not truly been transformed. I don't know if you sleep on one of these, but I got like a really squishy, foamy pillow, you know, where you like push it and it just springs back. That's Jonah. There's been some pressure that has conformed him to just do the right thing. The pressure of God's calling, the pressure of the storm, the pressure of the fish. And so you know what Jonah does? He just conforms to the pressure. And he goes to Nineveh, preaches a sermon, and they repent. And as soon as the pressure's off, Jonah's back to his original state. He's not been truly, substantially changed and transformed. This is what religion and morality and social pressure does. It just pushes us in a box and will conform externally, but the inside has not been changed. And that's what God is trying to reveal to Jonah. Great example that Jonah's now kind of back in his original form. Verse five, Jonah goes out of the city. He set to the east of the city and made a booth. That's a tent, tabernacle for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he would see what would become of the city. Now, you remember Jonah's sermon. He goes, uh, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's the worst sermon in the history of the world, okay? In the Hebrew, it's literally five words long. There's no great ping pong joke to open up his sermon, right? He doesn't build tension in with three points in a poem. He just says five words, okay? And then the whole city repents. So, but he's thinking, oh, 40 days. So what's he doing? Why is he going outside the city? He's hoping that they're a squishy, foamy pillow as well. And that the, the message, the pressure of you'll be overthrown, he's gonna sit outside the city and he's hoping and praying that they'll really get it. That they won't truly repent, they won't truly change, that they'll just go back to their ways and God will just go all Sodom and Gomorrah on them. So that's what he's doing outside the city. He's not in there discipling him and teaching him how to follow Yahweh and come to the rules. He's just like, I'm just gonna go outside and hope you don't really repent and that you do burn. But God is patient. He's a master teacher. He's being surgical again with Jonah. He says, you're not getting it. So let me try an object lesson. Now the Lord God appointed a plant made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. So if he built a tabernacle, a tent, a booth, uh, he was used to doing that as they celebrated the Feast of uh, Tents and Booths, Tabernacles. So you would build that with like kind of leaves and stuff. And if he's waiting outside the city for 40 days to see if God will really get him at the end of it, Probably that's kind of been worn down with the wind and the sun over time. So maybe his little tabernacle tent thing's got some holes in it. And so it's starting to get beat from the sun. So God provides this plant, this big kind of castor oil plant, some people think it is, to come over and spread and to give shade. And Jonah says this, or he was exceedingly glad. A more of a literal translation is he rejoiced with great joy. Like you ought to see Jonah like giddy. Like, ooh, a plant, you know, shade. Like, he's ecstatic over this stupid little thing, okay? And I think about that, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, 
for me, I remember like one of my giddy moments was like when I got an iPhone for the first time. Like I wasn't cool enough, not, not an early adapter to get the first one, so I got like the second one. But I still remember walking out of the domain in Austin, Texas from the Apple store with my iPhone. I was like, oh, you know, and I just felt it physically in my body. And I look back and I'm like, how stupid is that? It's a phone, you know, for crying out loud. And if I had that same phone today, I'd be so frustrated with it because it's slow, it's terrible pixels. But that's what it is. Jonah is exceedingly, with great joy, giddy about a little shade. Now here comes God. That's the setup. But then dawn came. God appointed a worm that attacked this one-day-old plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. I find interesting about this is, is God has given Jonah a little taste of his own medicine? Like God's kind of doing to Jonah what Jonah wants God to do to Nineveh? Like get them, like, like make it burn, make them wish they were dead. And so God's kind of flipped the script and giving Jonah that and Jonah's like, just kill me now, right? I can't bear this anymore. But then God says to Jonah, do you do well? to be angry for the plant? Like, do you have a right to be angry? And Jonah says, yes, I have a right to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't even make it grow. It came to being in a night and perished in the night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city in which there's 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. And there the book ends. Cliffhanger, climax, we don't know what happens next. And, and it ends with this question that just exposes Jonah, cuts him to the core, reveals his true motives. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Someone asks you a question that cuts you to the core. It's happened to me. Growing up, my dad drove a truck all the time, and in high school, I drove a truck, and then I had to buy my own car, so I bought a little car, and, um, but eventually, I got to the place where I could buy myself a truck again, I just felt like I got my man card back, right? I know it's stereotypical, but like, that's what I felt like, and so I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get a truck. I only live 3.7 miles from the church, and I just drive on the roads, but I felt like I needed a truck, because like every other guy in Texas has a truck, so I can like park by the trucks and be like, yeah, big tires, <laughs> you know, so that's just me, okay? That's just what I wanted, so I got my truck, and I'm like super giddy about it. I'm like, yeah, exceedingly, you know, exceedingly excited. And so I get my truck, bring it to church. And I remember the first person who I met at the church after buying my truck, it was Mark Merritt. If you don't know Mark Merritt, he was our facilities tech, just kept this campus like uh, up and afloat. And Mark is a real life MacGyver, okay? I remember this one time, he and I were doing something, he had a three-prong plug in a two-prong outlet, and it wouldn't fit, and so he just like takes his knife out and cuts off one of the prongs and sticks it in. I'm like, I didn't know that was legal. I didn't know you could do that, you know what I mean? So just, he is a genius with his hands and what he could build. And Mark is like Mr. Practical, black and white, like this is what you use things for, okay? So this is who I run into when I buy my truck. I drive it up here, I see Mark, I'm like, Mark! I got a truck finally, you know, I'm feeling so macho and stuff like that. And he's like, that's awesome, Destin. What are you hauling with it? Um, <laughs> uh, is that a trick? Um, nothing. I mean, I'm a pastor. I study. I don't really haul stuff, you know? And um, so I was thinking about it. I'm like, I don't know how to answer this question. And finally, I just broke down. I'm like, 
fine, Mark, my ego. That's what I'm hauling. I'm hauling my vanity all around Flower Mound, right? So now I'll just throw one rock in the back of it so it rattles around like I'm hauling stuff, you know, just to make Mark happy. But he asked me this question and it just, it revealed all my true motives, completely cut me to the core. And God does the same for Jonah in this moment. One question exposes all the motives. The word used in verse 10, 11 for pity, it's, it's care, it's concern, it's compassion. It, it, it's something that you would like grieve over someone or something, have your heart tied to something so closely that you would weep for it. We use this word cattle here, God throws it in there. It's just to show the absurdity of Jonah, like how upside down and how far off he is. He's like, he, he has pity, his heart is attached to this stupid little plant in his little shade even more care than cattle, much less people. And the phrase, 120,000 who don't know their right hand from their left hand, a couple ways you go about that. Number one is, they don't even know right from wrong. They're pagans, Ninevites. Yahweh has not revealed himself to them. He's not given them the law. They don't, they don't know right from wrong. So it could be like, how are you so upset and mad that they don't even know right from wrong? Or, you can translate that more literally. 120,000 who don't know their right from their left. Who, I did right, and I don't know mine, obviously. Um, but who among our population doesn't know the difference in their right and left hand? It's children. So maybe God's saying to Jonah, your heart is attached to, your primary care and concern is about a plant and some shade. And I, God, have my heart tied to and cared, concerned about lost souls of children. How could yours not be, Jonah? And that's how the book ends. And we never get the answer. The author just leaves us, cuts us off right there. But here's what's crazy. The author knows. Absolutely, the author knows what Jonah chose. So why leave it out? I mean, could we not learn what Jonah did and what he said and the consequences and apply that to our lives? Absolutely, we could. So why leave it out? The reason is because it would distract from the intent of the book. If we had Jonah's answer and how he responded, we would fixate on that. But the purpose of the book, of the cliffhanger, is for the author to ask you, do you care more about your shade than you do the souls of the lost? That's the exclamation part at the end of the book. And if we had Jonah's answer, we'd look at that instead of look at our own heart and go, what, what am I attached to? What do I have care and concern about? Is it my, my shade, my ease, my comfort? Or is it the souls of lost children around the world who will spend eternity apart from God if they don't hear the gospel. That's the reason it's left out. Just to be honest with you, that question has destroyed me this week. Like every time I sit down and read and try to study for this, I, I just weeping, I'm a mess. Just being honest with you, my answer, a lot of the time, if not all the time, I care about my shade more. I mean, I just do. So here's some questions I've been asking myself, and if you want to ask them to yourself, you can too. Do I care more about my own joy, comfort, and ease of life than the souls of lost individuals? 
Are my highest concerns the same as what God is concerned about? Are my priorities the same as God's priorities? Is my view of people the same as God's view of them? Do I love the lost? Is my heart tied up and attached to their soul? And the last time I got angry and cried was it because I lost something? Or is it over the souls of those who were lost? This whole series I've been trying to be like, I am Jonah, I am Jonah. But just being honest with you, like, there's a piece of me that can disassociate from Jonah and not want that title, right? Because Jonah's like, I want them to burn. I want judgment upon them. And I, self-righteous destined, go, I don't want that. I want everyone to come to Christ. But that's not what we're supposed to compare ourselves to Jonah. It's not what we, what we want for the loss, but whether where is our concern? Over our shade or over their soul? And so, I, I mean, I've just been wrecked by this. And I go, a lot of times that's just me. I mean, literally, I walk out my front door and right across the street, there's Mike. I know Mike doesn't know the gospel. He doesn't know Jesus. But sometimes my care is for my shade. I go, man, it's been a hard week. I've been sharing the gospel with other places, with this, you know, the people in the church, and I got three kids that I mean, I need to get in here and play with them and spend time with my wife, and I got this project at the house, and da da da. And I've got all these excuses. And here's what I just hear God saying to me there's always a ship at Joppa ready to take you away from the presence of the Lord. At least Jonah went. At least he opened his mouth. That's more than oftentimes I can say for myself. I was reminded in my studies, someone said this, that we're all living the game of Monopoly. All our stuff goes back in the box when it's over. The only thing you take with you into eternity are the souls of the people you have shared the gospel with and God has saved with his mighty hand. Came across the story of a missionary who I think gets this better than I do that has a care about lost people more than a care for themselves. There's a missionary, I can't remember where, but from a first world country where things are nice and there's shade and there's comfort and there's ease. And he gives it up and he goes to a third world country. There's a little tribe and some people and they're just far from God, very Nineveh-like. And just says, I'm gonna be incarnational like Christ is. I'm gonna come in here and move in here and learn your language and love you and live with you. One day he gets a toothache, comes, turns into an infection, he has to be flown out of the third world country back to his home country where he can get the medical and dental care. And so when he goes into the dentist, the dentist sits down to take the one tooth out and he says, don't take that tooth out. Take them all out. I never wanna have to leave them again and come have another tooth worked on. And so the dentist takes every single tooth out. So this man can go back to these people and love them and share the gospel and never have to leave for another tooth infection again. I don't have great teeth, but I love my teeth more than that. And that story is just so convicting about, man, care for my, my shape, for the souls of the lost. And you don't have to be a toothless missionary or some great evangelist, but just anything you do for the Lord, whatever you do for the Lord is never useless. We've been talking about lost souls and other people, but I just want you to personalize this for a second. Because whether you are or at one point you were 
one of those lost souls. And just want you to hear this, that we need many things. We get emotionally attached to things that meet those needs. God, however, needs nothing. He's utterly and perfectly happy in himself, and he does not need us. So why would he ever attach himself to us? The whole universe is no bigger to God than a piece of lint to us. And we are smaller pieces of lint on the lint. So how could God be attached to you? How could God say, whatever happens to you, whatever happens to Nineveh, affects him, moves him, and grieves him? It means that he voluntarily attaches his heart to you. He loves you so much. See, Jesus was the prophet that Jonah should have been. Jesus is literally anti-Jonah. Everything Jonah does wrong, Jesus does right. He runs to it. He sacrifices. And when Jonah runs outside the city to watch for condemnation, Jesus goes outside a city, climbs up on a cross for your salvation. And what Jonah wrestled with was this question like, how can God be gracious and just at the same time? It is a conundrum, but we see it in the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is where God's grace and justice simultaneously are on full display. Jesus' death for our sins shows how God can be infinitely just because we all sin and sin was punished there. But it's also how God can be infinitely loving because he took it upon himself. One last thought, one last question as we wrap up our series on Jonah. is Why did God choose Jonah, this all-knowing, omniscient God, like he knew Jonah would do this. Jonah didn't catch him by surprise, running away and jumping in the ocean, being, you know, having uh, be all angry and mocking God. Like God in his omniscience could have just picked someone more obedient, right? And just said, hey, you, and they just go and do and the whole 120,000 say, great, wonderful, awesome. So why did God pick Jonah? God picked Jonah not in spite of what he would do, but precisely because of what he would do. God wanted a double victory. He didn't just want the souls of the Ninevites. He needed to change Jonah's heart in the process. So why do you think you're in the family you're in, in the neighborhood you're in, in the school you're in, in the workplace you're in. It's not because you're the most competent, capable, the best one Jesus could find. There's someone better that could reach more souls. But he has you there because he wants a double victory. He wants you to share with your neighbors, with your coworkers, win their souls. But he's trying to change your heart in the process. Will you let him do that? Do we care more about our shade of the souls of the lost? If you're in a tough, uncomfortable situation, man, share the gospel and let God work in you as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this ridiculous book that is so convicting. Though you have preserved it and perfectly structured it and ended it with a cliffhanger. So we turn a mirror on ourselves and ask ourselves, is our heart attached to the flower mound shade 
more than it is the souls of our lost neighbors, family, and friends, and coworkers. God, we're helpless without you. We need you, your Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us to give us the, the boldness and the courage. We don't want to just conform to morality or religious rules or social pressure. God, we want to be transformed from the inside out. So thank you in your sovereignty that you've placed us exactly where you need us to be, that you would accomplish a double victory, what you would do in us and through us. God, use us to share with others the hope that is only found in Jesus. And while we do so, would you conform us into the image of your son? We love you. We thank you. We need you this day. It's in your name I pray. Amen.